Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So, hey, Caroline, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing great. This morning, Caroline sent me some pictures of her son, who was just born yesterday, but he went to the homecoming last night. <laughs> it's a true story. He was just a baby doing cute things, and now he's a a grown man. He's my baby. He's my yeah. grandbaby. Yeah. He was my firstborn grandson, and um, so you know, I mean, you know, I just I want him to stay little part of me, but I have to say. Seeing those pictures just filled me up with gratitude that I am able to have grandchildren and watch them grow and just become the hope that I have for the future of the world. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it was a great night. It really was a great night. It was a lot of fun for a lot of kids. And I got, I, it was fun for one of my kids. And so I just really, that was an experience. You know, it's, this whole year with my son has been just a pleasant, overwhelming joy at the various experiences that come with adolescence, of course. Yes, so, yes. I can, you know, people just go on and on about adolescence. It can be challenging, but on the other hand, it's just a miracle you to keep them safe, but also um, see them moving into the world. It, yes. I loved it, yes. and I had three children, and... Um, you know, I cried buckets, but it was, and I just thought, how, you know, why are you like this? And then uh, everybody snapped out of everything and became human. And it was no, it just, I mean, it is a miracle that that happens, but it is what happens. You're kind of like, oh, the parents snap out of it. The kids <laughs> snap out of it. Um, yeah, it's all good. So anyway, today, Caroline, we're going to be taking a very close look at a family annihilation. For me, this story, which you and Andy brought to me, and it it really opened my eyes to a lot of things, it raises a series of questions about a silent killer, I'll just put it that way, that often goes undetected until it is too late. This is the story of a legendary athlete named Chris Benoit. Uh, He probably pronounced it Chris Benoit. I think he did. That is my mother's maiden name, and he spelled it the same. So obviously I feel a kinship to him already. And Chris Benoit, Benoit, I'll call him Benoit because I think that was his preference. He shocked everyone who knew him and loved him when he killed his wife and his son and finally himself. So he was uh, a family annihilator. And uh, why? Why did Chris do it? Because it it was totally, at the time, 
unbelievable and impossible to understand. Now I kind of feel like I've got some insight into it. Chris Benoit was born, uh, Christopher Michael Benoit, on May 21st, 1967, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He spent most of his childhood in Alberta. Chris Benoit was born um, into a loving family. Uh, His full name was Christopher Michael Benoit. His parents were Michael and Margaret Benoit, and he had a sister. And by all accounts, this was a very tight-knit family, and Chris loved, um, Chris was loved, and he was a sweet, generous boy who spoke both French and English. Everybody said he was funny, just funny. He really was very loving toward other people. He became interested in professional wrestling very early in life. And when I say very early, I mean, whoa, very early. He loved family life. He loved wrestling. That is who he was. Those two things. I couldn't find a scintilla of information about any side interests or any hobbies. Or even any attempts at day jobs. Right. I mean, most of us, attempts at you know, most of us when we we're young, we're going out there flipping burgers. We're doing uh-huh. the thing, whatever. No, it is. no, 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 no. They, no, yeah. he was he was. Uh, well, according to his father, Chris was obsessive as a child, totally in love with the idea of becoming a wrestler. And he started preparing himself by the age of 12. So I don't know very many 12 year olds who begin to prepare themselves Uh, for anything other than I'm preparing to uh, get into trouble, go on my bike to somewhere I'm not supposed to go, Uh, be with people my mom says no, no. Um, Today's world, they prepare themselves to be YouTube stars, I think, which is Uh, Okay, you know, know, all right, yeah, yeah, I can (laughs) see how that would be. Anyway, at 12, I think it's precocious to know what you want to do with your life, but he did. For example, he somehow got a right side front tooth knocked out. The story is that he was playing with his uh, family dog and the dog accidentally, he was wrestling with the dog, of course, and the dog accidentally knocked his head and it knocked out his tooth. And he told his parents, do not fix it. He would surely lose it again as a professional wrestler. Oh, that's funny. As a result of this kind of laser focus on wrestling, Chris's father gave him a home gym set, and Chris was a dedicated athlete, and he had a lot of support, a lot of love, and a lot of support. In high school, he won numerous awards in wrestling and bodybuilding and had unwavering focus on becoming a world-class wrestler. So far, this story vaguely reminds me of the Arnold Schwarzenegger story. I was just, just thinking that, or, or like yeah. an Andre the Giant. Like it's, you know, yeah. these wrestlers, some of these wrestler stories are, are very cool. And they really did have a laser focus on this thing that didn't exist at the time. Really, uh, you know? Yes, yes. Anyway, my parents did tell me, do not put all your eggs in one basket. I know. You and I had no idea what that meant since we were not farmers. But I I eventually came to know that they're what they're saying about throwing your entire life into one pursuit 
And I can kind of see it if that one pursuit is music where, you know, even if you're not being paid, you can still play music and all of that. But something like wrestling is, is, you know, just really a problem. Yeah. No, I hear you. Anyway, he's wrestling. Tom Billington and Bret Hart were his inspiration as a kid. He attended several wrestling shows where these two performed. He imitated Billington and Hart while training and even incorporated his finishing move, the sharpshooter move, as one of his very own finishing moves when he started wrestling professionally. Now, Caroline, I know you're Dying to know, what is the sharpshooter move? <laughs> I had to, of course, look it up. Sharpshooter is a move in wrestling that gets your opponent to fall to the mat due to excruciating pain in their back. And then the uh, when they're down on their back, they have to hammer the floor with their fist to get you to stop. It is also known as the scorpion death grip. Okay. So wrestling is a sport that's inflicting pain on others and getting them down on the mat, pinning them down, winning points. Yeah. And these colorful names for these moves. Yeah. Even way back, you know, before modern times in wrestling yeah. sort of points to a flair for the dramatic. The, yes, the um the exaggerated sort of drama around because you know wrestling matches happen all the time they happen in high school they happen you know and the moves are it's per, there's probably some standard you know half Nelson Nelson I, you know I know some of those wrestling terms from standard wrestling so I think in the evolution which I know you're going to go through it is interesting that this was an important piece it's not just that we have moves and that we do this technical stuff but that they have names that it's all a dance, you know, an opera. It is. It's a little bit like fencing. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like um, probably football, baseball, mm -hmm. all of those sports. Mm -hmm. But in wrestling, you are so close to your opponent that their sweat is dripping onto your face and your sweat is dripping onto their face. It's very intimate sort of pain. <laughs> I only know about the scorpion death grip uh, because of the research that I did for this case. I didn't even know that actually that this world was what it was. And in fact, when I was a kid, I admit that I learned from my parents that wrestling was fake and they found it ridiculous that the fans of these wrestlers uh, actually thought that these wrestlers were not acting. And so I paid no attention to it. I thought it was stupid. And I did not see it as an athletic sport. And really, Caroline, my real admission here is that uh, what's worse than thinking it's stupid is I look down on it. Yeah. And I looked down on the people who followed it. And now I know that I that was a folly. I I was wrong about that. Now yeah. that I've done this research into Chris Benoit. Yeah. 
So what is this history of wrestling? I want to get into that very briefly. Competitive wrestling was a legitimate and serious sport in the 1800s. And by the turn of the century, it had fallen into oblivion because the matches took too long. And the fans and the people who betted on who the winner would be, they had to wait hours and hours and hours for a match between two evenly matched competitors to complete the match. And they're not going to watch it if they're not evenly matched. I mean, you know. But even back then, no one could stay focused on a game that doesn't quit and has no heart-stopping moments. Right. Uh, I think if you've ever watched high schoolers in a wrestling match, sometimes it takes a minute or two to even get from one move to another. Right. The, the the person on the bottom of that that's trying to get up has it's to use struggle. an approved move to get up. Yes, and it's all very choreographed, sort of. But anyway, a lot of lot of technical stuff, and I did not know that. So in the early 1900s, promoters started staging matches between two competitors who were skilled, but for whom the winner and loser was preordained. These weren't fixed matches. Now, fixed matches, when you advertise it as uh, there's going to be a winner and a loser and it's going to be legitimate, that's a fixed match where one of the uh, opponents uh, or one of the principals uh, cheats and takes a fall and the other one wins and the, the fix was in at the beginning. That's not what this is. These promoters staging these mat matches, uh, you know, again, the winner and the loser were preordained. They were staged matches, but all of the physicality of it, all the moves, everything was real. It was real. It was brutal. It was dramatic. And at the same time, it was choreographed, but the audience did not know who would win until it was final. Mm. The only time that somebody won unexpectedly for the promoters, they didn't expect this person to win or that person to win, was when uh, somebody would actually get injured so badly oh, okay. that they had to be taken out. They couldn't, yeah, go on. But the moves are so particular in wrestling that they're designed to not seriously injure someone. Right. But, of course, you know, not a lot of thought went into that because a lot of people did get injured. So well, there I think was, at that time, it would have been not injured, meaning you're still walking around. They don't know to, you know, it's like it doesn't take into account that, well, you've actually like messed up the ligaments here and you're going to end up not having the use of this leg in five years. But, you know, <laughs> you're right. You can walk now. So you're not injured. Yeah. My my idea of an injury would be uh, something hurts time out. Uh no, that's not what was going on. You probably had to be dead to be injured. Too. They were equated, you know. So anyway, in this environment, this early environment of wrestling, there was a lot of suspense and delight for some who were watching and betting on it and disappointment for others. Now you're talking entertainment <laughs> where people are hooked. They can get home in time for dinner and uh, they know that there's a winner that has been preordained, but nobody knows who it is. Right. <laughs> and so they're going to bet on who it is. 
Yeah. Just like they betted on who was going to win before it became a choreographed show. It was a clever pivot, in all honesty, for the industry. It's a clever pivot to keep the sport alive, um, to keep uh, the money coming in, obviously, which is why it's done. But, you know, that's clever. It's clever. And it makes sense. (laughs) I think it's very clever. And, you know... You, I always used to think about people in the in the in the eighteen hundreds as you know they're just don't they're so ignorant they don't know anything that is they're just as clever as we are today possibly more so yes. and uh, they are uh, the the things that people come up with that's been going on since probably not to be too biblical but Adam and Eve mm-hmm. um, or actually before it's just it's just right. part, in the human psyche to come up with ways to meet an objective while uh, protecting yourself against an unwanted intruder into that win. Yeah, that's a great way to, yeah, well said. (laughs) By the 1960s and 70s, the TV wrestling audience had exploded and different organizations gained popularity for these staged events. They were real, but they were choreographed. And good Lord, the costumes. Oh, my God, the hair. Wrestlers had personas. And there were stories about the different characters that lasted a series of matches. And it was all hyped up entertainment, just theater. It was theater. People were gobsmacked. They got into it. For some reason, I'm thinking of Liberace right now. Like, I wonder, because I know at similar time, he was very much doing the, out, like, out outdoing himself on costumes, right? With his piano performances on TV, was he not? So, I mean, it was the era of big, dazzling shows anyway, right? Yes. Yes, and Las Vegas was, uh, you know, what it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, just this dazzling, glamorous, secretive, run by the mob kind of, you know, (laughs) place where you could, anyway, um, yeah, it was so entertainment, and your your, uh, thought about Liberace is right on. Liberace's brilliance was, he was great at the piano, so are a lot of other people, so he found a way, put a candelabra on his grand piano, white, and started dressing in these 75 to 100 pound costumes and surrounding himself with dazzle and razzle dazzle. And he uh, is a legend. Legend. He's a legend. So, yeah, that's what was going on in the 60s and 70s. Now, remember our uh, subject, Chris Benoit, he's he's around. He was he was born in 67. So now he's seeing all this. And at 12, he's just hit, you know, he's watching TV. He's watching it's these people. Thing. He's yeah. going to shows. Personally, I love the opera, especially Italian opera. And I would probably pay good money to hear a very good tenor or soprano sing just about anything. If they wanted to sing the dictionary, I would probably go and listen just to behold the passion for what they were singing and it would be emotional and dramatic. And I wouldn't know that it was about the dictionary because I don't speak that language. And uh, so, you know, it's just the, 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 the sheer uh, drama of the whole thing 
got a lot of people hooked on wrestling. So anyway, back to Chris Benoit. Chris was winning awards after high school and in professional wrestling, wrestling as he went all over the world and learned how to excel at the sport. He was in Japan with a wrestling organization there, wrestling as an up-and-comer, of course, uh, when he met his best friend. The friendship between Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero dates back to the early 1990s. Now, Eddie Guerrero came from a family of wrestlers, and he was um, much loved, very talented. Their path took them to the same promotions at the same time, from New Japan Pro Wrestling to uh, wrestling matches in Mexico, all over Europe, in Germany in particular, and with the uh, worldwide entertainment, uh, uh, the pardon me, the worldwide wrestling entertainment organization, the bond between them was closer than most brothers. The early death of Eddie Guerrero would have a profound effect on Chris, and and we're going to talk about that in a minute as we get to the situation that led up to the murders. Um. Yeah, imagine growing up with somebody almost like sharing. Well, we were roommates in college. It would be like that, only instead of being roommates in college, you were all over the world, uh, you know, suffering for your art, trying to get up, trying to be a big star. And uh, you would be rooming with that person, eating meals with that person, living every breath with that person for years. Competing, trying to get better, trying to help each other. They really loved each other. It's really like a more than just a friendship, more than a partnership in business and industry. It's just, they just were family. I mean, these two became brothers. During the early days of his career, Chris married his first wife, Martina, and they had two children, David and Megan. His marriage broke up, however, because Martina wanted a more traditional life, and that was just something that Chris could not provide. Uh, He remained very close to his first family, including his ex-wife, for the rest of his life. Uh, But they did get a divorce. So now Chris is out there. He's a free man. Um, All he cared about, really, was wrestling and his family. He still had his family, um, even though the divorce went through. And his career began to skyrocket. He had names such as, I'm going to name two names out of probably 200 names he had for different storylines within different organizations of professional wrestling. These are his character names, like the characters he would take yeah, on? Yeah, for a long time he was known as the Crippler. Um, and for a long time he was part of a group called the Four Horsemen. And there's, that's a nickname for the Four Four horsemen of the apocalypse yeah. from <laughs> Revelations. So, I mean, you know, I'm going to whoop you like the, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> there were many very long, drawn out, dramatic stories in the wrestling world to satisfy the fans. I, I'm trying to think of a way to equate it to something in today's society. Well, soap opera, you and you and dad watched soap operas for how many yes. decades? So yes, we did. We we watched uh, that stuff doesn't uh all my children yeah. 
He would race home on his lunch hour so that we could watch all my children together. Yeah. You're you're funny. right. I mean, we, you know, we would talk at night about, you know, what are they going to do? What do you think's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Same thing. Same thing. It's it once you put humans thing. in a storyline and you attach yourself to them in some way, it's over. You identify yeah, with one of the characters or more yeah. of the characters. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you're right. They were elaborate stories with heroes and antagonists galore. One such story involved a supposed affair between Chris Benoit and Nancy Sullivan. She was a, a woman wrestler in her own right, and she also became other, uh, more, uh, visible role in men's, uh, professional wrestling. Uh, she went by the character name, a woman, and she would introduce some of the matches. She would play uh, roles in different storylines. And um, she was married to an associate wrestler in the same league as Chris named uh, Kevin Sullivan. Now, the promoters, uh, you know, put out this story about Chris is having an affair with Nancy. Or Chris and Nancy have been seen together. Maybe it wasn't as overt as they're having a sexual liaison. For weeks and weeks, there were matches between Chris and Kevin amidst the rumors of an affair and a vendetta Kevin had against Chris because of the affair with his wife, Nancy. They'd get on, they'd be interviewed for TV. And yeah, they when I TV see him shorts. in the ring, he's going to wish he'd never been born. Yeah, that, that was an interesting piece I hadn't really understood about wrestling and the history of wrestling is that it was much more like the drama of the soap operas in that they had these drawn out storylines and they did make it a little bit overt because I think that Nancy and Chris did a couple scenes where they would have like, a romantic dinner or they'd maybe be in the bath together and like talking about Kevin and it was yes. an interesting thing and it is seen as such a tragic piece of the story because of how it all unfolds in reality right this is all yes. fake well yeah we'll talk about Sullivan uh the wrestler um Kevin as yeah as we go forward um so anyway uh you know, there were rehearsals, there were setups like you were talking about, Caroline. And Chris and Nancy sort of started feeling something for one another. Mm -hmm. That was not in the script. Mm -mm. Uh, in truth, all this playful, dramatic, theatrical production for the sake of the fans had caused Chris and Nancy to realize that they had actually fallen in love. Now, remember, Nancy's married. But she went to Kevin and she told him, you know, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I love you, but I don't want to be married to you. I want to be married to Chris. Well, and so uh, Nancy and Kevin were divorced and uh, Chris and Nancy got married. And, you know, they all stayed in the same league. Well, uh, Nancy, Nancy did uh, end her career there and uh, began to be uh, Chris's organizer. You know, she kept him straight and on the right planes and yeah. paid the bills. And and yeah. eventually they went on to have a son in 2000 named Daniel. And she took care of him, of course. Well, and I, I think Nancy doesn't get it. It's, you know, no matter how many times these individuals get spoken about, she doesn't get enough clout for 
what she brought to wrestling, really, because it, you know, everything I've looked at, everybody just really goes like Nancy created a thing that didn't exist and it now no longer exists, but she paved a way for what wrestling looks like today, right? Like, this is what I hear. I wasn't there. I don't know. But, and then, yeah, she does the thing that a lot of women do, which is to put it aside to go raise a family, but she's still heavily involved because I think her and Chris have the same mentality. Like, this is our life. This is our world. This is where we want to be. This is where we want to put our energy and we want to raise a family. So I just, I just really like Nancy so much for so many reasons. I like her a lot too, Caroline. And you know, she, these were her friends. Yeah. This was their family. Yes. And so there were plenty of times when Chris would bring her and little Daniel along with Mm -hmm. him, especially when they traveled and did tours in Europe or South America or in ca- across Canada or right. over to Japan. You know, they, within these uh, wrestling organizations, they shared talent yeah. back and forth. Yeah. And um, you were still contracted with one group, right. be it world wrestling or the Japan people or whatever, but you could get you know, lent out to go be in a match over here and carry on a storyline over there and so forth and so on. So Chris Benoit, as he developed his art and his craft and his athletic endeavor of wrestling, professional wrestling, he was loved. He had so many admirers, not just his fans, but other wrestlers, he was kind. He was always funny. He 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 was who he was. I mean, he was honest and authentic, and he was generous. He was always giving his an a, a hand, you know, putting his hand out to help people who wanted to be like him. He they you know people will say there was no one like him. He was so intense. And now intense about wrestling has the happy face of everybody loves Chris. But if Chris made a mistake in the ring, a technical mistake in the ring, there are reports that he would make himself do 500 squats to punish himself. Yeah. He was really hard on himself. Very hard on himself. He had to be technically perfect. and. He had that since age 12. He wanted yeah. to be technically perfect. He he loved the stories. He loved the art. He loved the theater of it, but he wanted to be technically perfect. Yeah, I think his favorite was the physicality. I think you're right of all the things because he was good at it all. And when you kind of like the things that I saw with him, he does look like a grown child, like not in a bad way. He does way, look just like in, a grown he's child. He's missing loving. a tooth. He's Oh, yeah. He's, he's out got the there. Sad he's, puppy look on his face. Yeah, no fear. Like he's ready no. to do it. He's but all these other things too. Like you can see all that too. So it is. Yeah, it's interesting to me. He really is drawn to the physicality, and I had forgotten that piece that he. People did say he was very hard. He punished himself. It wasn't even that he was hard on himself. He punished himself. He would punish himself. Dole out punishments if he ever made a mistake. He was absolutely heart, soul, and body devoted to wrestling and his family 
And he worked with a lot of leagues and organizations, some of which, as I said, had talent swaps. So there was traveling all over and he would take his family all the time. Nancy stayed in that business. Yeah. Uh, they were very tight and he was able to build a fam- his family, a wonderful big home in Fayetteville, Georgia, which I have been there many, many times. It's right outside Atlanta. It's a beautiful part of Georgia. A lot of, um, it's a, it's like a dream. And, and it was like a dream, like uh, dream life for him and Nancy and Daniel. And they doted on him. Oh my gosh. And he worshiped his father. You can see pictures of him, um, Chris, with his son, Daniel. And Daniel's just looking at him like he's just the, uh, you know, a god. And he loved being part of the wrestling family because a lot of his friends were having children as well and trying to build families. And families were welcome in that industry to, you know, take your kid to work today. (laughs) So one of the things that made Chris a fan favorite was that he was very technically strong. And so he knew so many wrestling moves and he was fearless. One of the things about him was that he was one of the only wrestlers in the world who would allow someone to break an actual chair over the back of his head. And it didn't seem to bother him. Uh Uh-huh. One of his most dangerous moves was called the diving headbutt. This involved Chris climbing to the upper levels of the wrestling ring ropes. I mean, he had to climb a ladder um, and he would dive down to the ring like off a diving board in a pool dive onto the floor of the ring head first into his opponent and the floor. He did this so many times when few others could even begin to master it or want to. And he never asked to see a medic. He was never told to go get a CT scan and make sure you're okay. After crashing headfirst onto the body and the floor of the ring over And over and over, people love to watch him make that crawl up to the top and jump off the diving board like a donkey in a surface going into a baby pool. I mean, you just know that this is just so dramatic. Is this really going to happen? Is everybody going to be okay? And in the in the sort of eighties and nineties, when I think a lot of sports were getting more intense and the physicality was more, you know, because you did. You had a lot of steroid use. I mean, people had beefed up their bodies over the that couple decades. And so, I mean, you we didn't know as much as we know now about the spacing you needed between these injuries, you know, to really truly heal, that kind of stuff. And also, the move he's using, I believe one wrestler previous to him had invented it. And everybody knew that wrestler was a little off now. Like he couldn't, that wasn't something really he should have been doing. So I think people were also a little bit afraid of this because they didn't know the long-term impacts. There wasn't something we knew, but we we knew that couldn't really be good long-term, but nobody was willing to step in and do any of the science. They just were like, wow, he's, he's a, a badass, if you will. You know, he's doing this move. Look at him go. 
but we just were uneducated at that time. I think nobody knew the language to say, hey, do you think maybe you should limit that to once a year maybe if you're going to do that move? Or yeah, like you're saying, maybe afterwards we have a protocol for you in place so that we can get you checked out after that move. And, you know, but that's not how a business is going to That's not how it was working. And, you know, if you ask somebody, do you need to see a doctor? (laughs) And these people are phenomenal athletes. What do you think they're going to say? Athletes are never going to want to go see their no, because I think it's difficult. They don't want to be taken out of play. Number one. Yeah. I think that's the number one. They think about, I don't want to screw myself over and I don't want to screw over my coach, you know, or whoever I answer to. Absolutely. <laughs> Chris won the United States championship belt four times in his career. He was larger than life and he had fans worldwide. But Chris Benoit changed the day he was told that his best friend, Eddie Guerrero, was dead. Now, remember, these two were like brothers to each other, and they had worked together for five years, uh, traveling, you know, cheek to jowl, uh, sharing their lives, and becoming brothers. On November 13th, 2005, Guerrero was found unconscious in his hotel room at the Marriott Hotel City Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by his nephew, Chavo. In a 2020 interview for the documentary Dark Side of the Ring, Chavo explained that Eddie had passed out in the hotel room bathroom with a toothbrush in his hand and was barely clinging to life when Chavo discovered him. Eddie Guerrero was pronounced dead upon the ambulance arriving at the scene. He was 38 years old. An autopsy revealed that Guerrero died as a result of acute heart failure due to underlying arterial sclerosis cardiovascular disease. And I probably said that wrong, but it killed him. Is that a a form of heart disease? Yes. Gosh, that sounds really young. How does one get heart disease at 38? Is that genetic, I wonder, or? I don't know. I mean. uh, That's so young. In the process of reading about Guerrero, um, to find out how he died and what happened and all that, I stumbled upon an article that listed all of the professional wrestlers who were in national uh, seated circuits um, who died before the age of 45. And it was filled up a page like a high school, uh, you know. uh, Yearbook page or something. Yearbook. Thank you. Yeah. Jeez. You're and they die because of uh, perhaps the dangers of their profession, but they also die because they are using steroids. They're using okay. uh, testosterone. They um, they are using other performance-enhancing drugs. And uh, the work itself is, you know very traumatic physically. And, you know, you can't hurt one part of your body Mm -hmm. with a severe trauma and not have it affect 
other parts of your body. 100%, yeah. And uh, so they're in a very, uh, this article said that professional wrestling has a higher mortality rate than cops. Wow. What about um, nighttime gas station attendants? You know, they're yeah, like all of the one. above. They, they, they're a very high uh, mortality rate. Wow. For, when I say high mortality rate, I mean too young to die mortality rate. Well, yeah. 38 year olds don't drop dead of cardiovascular anything. So that's, no. I mean, unless it's a gene- genetic predisposed issue, but that shocks me a bit. And it's a little bit scary. I hope that those organizations are looking into that to mediate in some way, the way that all sports do like football and soccer and basketball. Everybody has their issues. It, But this sounds like it's speeding up the aging process of the body. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not really sure, Caroline, if the National Football League is so overarching all of the different teams in that sport, for example. And likewise with baseball, you've got the National Baseball League, you've got the same for basketball players. But is there an overarching uh, watchdog group or association looking over professional wrestlers? I don't know. Actually, that's a really good point on a national scale. There is no sports. uh, You know, it's a deregulated industry, let's say, or a self-regulated industry, which historically in America, doesn't tend to go well all the time. So no, no. And I, you know, I don't know enough about it to speak with authority, but I do know based on the way that the world wrestling entertainment enterprise acted after Chris Benoit murdered his family, I see them as intensely 100% thoroughly self-serving. And I'll get into that in a minute. So they're, you know, they exploit these people who want so badly at 12 years old to be part of the wrestling world. And until they drop dead, I guess, I don't know. Hulk Hogan, I think, isn't he still alive? I'm not. But there is, you're right though. There's a lot of controversy. I know that Hulk Hogan has had to fight for certain things. You know, like you said, I don't know enough to fight with or to speak with authority, but I do know that there's more stories about how these people who have dedicated decades of their life and body to these organizations are, are asking why they're being thrown out to pasture and not even helped in any way. You know, they get no help. They are on their own once they're broken. It's a stark reality and a bitter, bitter thing to think that you're part of a wrestling family and you're beloved by everyone, including your boss, only to find out your boss is selling you out. Yeah. Or he's just not going to answer your calls anymore. He's just going to stop calling you. Like it's a ghosting thing, I think. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I know that that happens in a lot of industries. I'm sure Hollywood's not that much different, but at the same time, like, Oh God, don't get me started. (laughs) They're not dedicating their bodies. I mean, this man gave up 40 plus years, you know, like with them and I'm doing the math. I'm trying to do the math with the medical impacts. You know, they're spending their entire life. There may be 38, right? So there's almost 40 years of your life dedicated to an industry. Well, at the end of the train, when we look at your body, it's 80. It looks 80. Everything looks 80. That means you gave up that last 40 years just to have the first 40 be dedicated to the entertainment of others. 
Does that make sense? Did oh, I yeah. Do my math right? But I, yes, it's hard not to be frustrated. This by death that. of Guerrero, this death marked a dark, dark time for Chris Benoit. I don't think he'd really had a dark, dark time until then. The wrestling world and fans were shocked and deeply, deeply hurt by Eddie Guerrero's death. His nephew, Chavo, was beloved, and people gathered around him and each other for support. Guerrero's best friend, Chris, however, was broken. He could not stop crying. Uh, He had to speak uh, on camera about what the uh, Wrestling Association had lost uh, in a tribute to Guerrero. And in the middle of even just trying to get the words out, he broke down sobbing uncontrollably. Just he was he was broken by this grief and loss. And after um, he did stop crying, he had changed. He stayed away from people. He wouldn't let anybody in. Nobody could ask him, how you doing today? He wouldn't even look at them. Just leave me alone. That's sad. Nancy had filed for divorce. But Chris wanted a reconciliation, and and she agreed. And she later completely withdrew her petition for divorce, and they got back together again. In 2004, Benoit headlined multiple pay-per-views for World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, including a victory in the World Heavyweight Championship main event match of WrestleMania uh, 20, which is two X's, so WrestleMania XX, in March 2004. God, that took me a long time to get that out. Anyway, Chris's son, Daniel, and his wife came into the ring with him to accept the international award uh, of this event. And he accepted the World Wrestling um, Championship in 2004. He accepted the prize. There's lots of pictures and videos out there of him and his wife and Daniel. And, you know, there's just so much. They're just a cute, sweet little unit that you would never know what is lurking ahead. Uh, Chris began working closely with younger wrestlers at the request of his boss, bosses, helping them and supporting them. And he slowly began taking on the role of mentor. And it's not too hard to imagine how that might have felt. Many new wrestlers were entering the business of wrestling and new bodies that hadn't been broken yet. And it was evolving with the world around it. Pay-per-views and other televised and digitized events were coming along. There were there were uh, video games galore that were oh, yeah. you know animated by these wrestlers. Storylines, new storylines, even better storylines, costumes and entertainment value for the fans was evolving and life was moving on. And Chris sort of was the goat, you know. Yeah. The old man on board that everybody loved, but he's over here now, and he was very well respected, and at the time, he knew his days were numbered, 
as the new millennium moved forward and new people came on board. Now, I have to tell you, I know a woman who uh, worked her entire life in one job with a major government uh, organization, and she got to the top of her game. And I'm not kidding you, here come these new college graduates. She never got a college degree, but she was doing the job Mm -hmm. and she had a great reputation. And pretty soon, all the good work, the interesting work, the work that was challenging and the work that people uh, would get accolades for achieving uh, within that work were given to these young people. And... At this time, it was both gender discrimination Mm -hmm. because everybody who got the great new work were men. Yeah, young. And (laughs) um, uh, she had been in a predominantly female profession up to that point until the salary got good and then the men came along. Oh. And um, she wound up taking a psychiatric leave from work, retired early and died not too long after that. Because of the stress that comes from a an organization that one day, you know, just uses you, uses you, uses you for 40 years and one day decides you're not good enough. But they don't even tell you. I mean, that's, I think, the piece of it that really throws you and I could see causing a mental breakdown. No one's even talking to you about what is going on. It would be... Oh, it's Gaslight Central. Well, yeah, because it would actually be... I don't want to say easier to accept because the whole thing is difficult because change is difficult for humans. And yes, when you get to a certain place in your career, you're going to get ousted. It's just the nature of the progression of human nature. And so, but it's the lack of approaching her and saying, now, look, I want to give you the good work still, but we've got these young people. I need to start giving it to them. You know, this is not going to feel good to you, but it's none of that happens. Maybe it happens today. Doubt it. But people just ghost other people and they just simply don't tell them and they pass it on to the new people. And why do you have such an attitude problem if you were to say anything negative about it? (laughs) I don't think Chris had any idea in his head that this could ever end. And... um. Bearing in mind that he has been in a fantasy world pretty much from, you know, 12 years old. True. And um, so when this happened to him, uh, and it'd be good if people were hired to do physical work and they were told right at the beginning, you know, you, you're going to have a career doing this physical work until you reach somewhere between the age 40 and 50, and then you're not going to be able to do it anymore. Now, there are laws in this country against that, that are age uh, bias laws. But on the other hand, in the military, when I remember Ben, your brother, when he was in the Marine Corps and he was getting out of the Marine Corps, they put him through a process of trying to figure out what he wanted to do next. Mm. And um well, that's good. You know, so they have a they have a, an on-ramp called recruiting and then boot camp and right. and then all the and then they have an off-ramp. Right, called what's next for what's you. What's next for you? Let's yeah. help you 
be successful for the rest of your life. Well, now, yeah, what would a what's next for you conversation would have done for Chris, right? Or well, but we do have this added layer of this Eddie Guerrero loss. And you're right. I think that was something happened. A, A switch got flipped there. Because he something really- was already there and it just got activated yeah. really bad. And by 2007, now is where we're at. Uh, Daniel was seven years old. That's his son. He was doing well. He was a very small boy who went everywhere with his family, um, just cute as a button. Nancy took care of everything at home for Daniel and, and also Chris. And she also did all the booking and kept scheduled his, kept his schedule and all the events and managed the travel and on and on and on. So everything changed, though, in that year, because on Friday, June 22nd, 2007, Chris Benoit killed his wife, Nancy, in the bonus room of their house, which was being used as an office. And according to the police report, her limbs were bound prior to death. Her arms were being restrained with coaxial cables and her feet were duct taped together. A balled up combination of a tube sock and tape was also found in the kitchen trash and appeared to be soaked in dried blood, which led police to believe that it was being used as a makeshift gag prior to her death. Her body was found wrapped in a blanket. A copy of the Bible was left by her body. Injuries indicated that Benoit had pressed a knee into her back while pulling on a cord around her neck, causing strangulation. Officials said that there were no signs of immediate struggle. Mm. So, Nancy and Chris, and little Daniel are together. They are a family. They're doing their life. And then this snap on this day. And so now Chris is in the house in Fayetteville with his dead wife, And his son is in his bedroom and sleeps that night, Friday night. And uh, Chris decided to let people know that he could not fly to Houston that night because Nancy and Daniel had food poisoning. So here he's taking a step to make sure that his coworkers know that he's not going to be able to make it. Now, he'd never missed work before. Right. Well, and it was an odd series of texts, you know, I mean, it's just weird. It was, it's weird what started to happen after this. Yes. No one obviously knew what was happening in his home, but the things he did. The things he did were, uh, b- defied the imagination of everyone who knew him. I still now, don't that understand that night he it. would, this is, this is on Saturday, he was supposed to be in a pay-per-view rehearsal and a filming that later that night you know bearing in mind that these events what whatever you're doing in this wrestling world you've got to go to you've got to rehearse the moves there's a script of moves there's no words just you know it's no different than the casting call i mean i really liken these 
folks to the soap opera shows. I mean, it's the same kind of cycle. You know, those guys are on contract. They're making weekly episodes. They're every day. It's a, it's a, it's a, like a nine to five, you know, nine to nine kind of. Oh yeah. This is like gladiator. Yes. It's like gladiator. Yes. Everybody in Rome was, you know, had their favorite gladiators (laughs) and they would watch these gladiators fight, 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 um, to the death. And then, okay, I got to find somebody else to love. Right, right. Uh, as right, a gladiator. Right. And, you know, the life expectancy there was, you know, I don't know, two weeks. <laughs> all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, um, you know, that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah. Is that, um, anyway, he was supposed to be there. So he had to call in an excuse. Nancy and Daniel are ill. And after that, uh, action. We, you know, there's no telling what he did. I mean, Daniel was still alive that night. Nobody knows where, did they go somewhere? Did they stay in the house? Um, but all that was going to change the next day because it was now Saturday in Fayetteville and Chris made the terrible choice of murdering his son as well. So his wife was murdered on Friday and then, you know, Saturday came and the and Daniel was awake and then he went to bed and he was suffocated and he was killed in his own bedroom with a copy of the Bible right by his body. Daniel had internal injuries to the throat area showing no bruises. Daniel so that is how they feel like, you know, they know that he was smothered, not strangled. Oh, okay. Daniel's exact time of death is unknown. The reports determine that Daniel was sedated with Xanax and likely unconscious when he was killed. And again, as I said, Chris left a Bible by his dead son. Now, later on Sunday morning, Chris talked to Chavo Guerrero, who is the nephew of Eddie Guerrero, Chris's best friend who had died suddenly. And they were talking on the phone sort of about Chris's plans to come to Houston to do the pay-per-view. But Chris had also, Caroline, this is getting to what you were talking about. Chris had also sent Chavo a very strange text on Saturday. And it said that the dogs were out back and the back door is unlocked. He sent the same exact message to other wrestlers who were puzzled. What? Chris also sent texts to Chavo later that same night with his exact home address down to the zip code. Like he's going, you know, this street. This is where I live. Fayetteville, Georgia, 98210 or whatever. And what's crazy is the unspoken piece here because it's Sunday. So we know that he has murdered his family. Yes. He's maybe perhaps made decisions about what to do next. And so the unspoken text here is, I've murdered my family. When you get here, the dogs are going to be out back, but the back door will be unlocked. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's kind yeah. of how I'm receiving these now. Well, and that's why Chavo called him to see, you know, hey, man, where what's going on? What are your plans? That kind of thing. Yeah. 
on that last phone call that Chavo made to him when he after he had seen those texts. Yeah. Uh, Chavo say, hey, hey man, you know, I'm here for you, Chris. Are you okay? Yeah. That kind of thing. Chavo reassured Chris that he was cared about. Everyone was worried about his family being so sick. And Chris ended that call, never saying what was going on. He just said, Chavo, yeah, I love you. Now, this was way out of character. It wasn't out of character for Chris to say, hey, I love you, man. Yeah. You know I love you, man. That kind of thing. Right. But this was way out of character, the way that Chris usually said, I love you. It was very different. And, of course, Chavo was very concerned. He just was, remember, he just lost his uncle yeah. and um, he not just, but are. I mean, you know, that's still fresh and, oh, yeah. and everybody knew that Chris was not himself. No. And it's a family here. I mean, they do operate as a family as much as we're talking about how they're throwing these guys out once they're used up, but the, but the, but the bonds are very real that, you know, you're as oh, concerned yeah. as you are about your brother. By later that Sunday morning, Chris had took his own life. Benoit used a weight machine cord to hang himself by creating a noose from the end of the cord on a pull-down machine from which the bar had been removed. Benoit released the weights, causing his strangulation. Actually, what happened was he was found hung. He was up, hanging from the pulley cable. And later that night, the... World Wrestling Entertainment Organization stopped the pay-per-view that was scheduled and aired a three-hour Chris Benoit tribute that went out to the world of fans of wrestling, and in particular, Chris Benoit. By late Monday, the world knew via the autopsy results that Nancy was killed by strangulation on Friday and then the next day, Daniel was tranquilized and then smothered. And on Sunday, Chris had killed himself. He had some steroids and some testosterone in him. Was that why he did it? The World Wrestling Entertainment Organization put out a new statement apologizing for the premature tribute to Chris Benoit and revealing what he had done and began that day and forevermore banishing Chris Benoit from everyone's lips, making him persona non grata to the world as if he never existed, let alone brought millions and millions of people to events just to see the legend that was Chris Benoit. All that would be wiped away, Caroline. No attempt to understand what in the hell has happened here. Right. What can we learn from this? Chris's father believed that roid rage, as other people were saying, in other words, the steroids made him do it. He did not believe that had anything to do with his death, and he's right. Roid rage can create explosive bursts of anger, yes. Chris's family annihilation, though, took three deliberate and distinct acts over three days. Yeah. That's not roid rage. No. Roid rage is an outburst and it's over. Right. Short duration. 
the levels of testosterone he was using at the were at the therapeutic level according to toxicology and he wasn't maxed out on steroids either he had some Xanax in him too his father asked that his brain be studied to see if his continuous head injuries that were never treated over many years could have been the cause of a sudden loss of control, a loss of judgment, a loss of executive function. Tests concluded on Benoit's brain by Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at Western Virginia University, showed that Benoit, quote, Benoit's brain was so severely damaged, it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient, end quote. Other tests conducted on Benoit's brain tissue revealed severe chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Severe chronic traumatic encephalopathy and damage to all four lobes of the brain and the brain stem. So he just basically did not have a functioning brain. I was just going to say, that sounds like the whole thing's gone completely. The whole thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. The left and the right hemisphere right. and both of the, the, uh, the all quadrants of his brain the were brain stem. Uh, riddled with uh, empty space. Yeah. And uh, the brain stem as well. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Bales and his colleagues concluded that the repeated concussions can lead eventually to dementia, which can contribute to severe behavioral problems. Well, and <clears throat> I just want to say that's the thing. I mean, he was a, how old was Chris? When he, he was 40. So 40, 40 year old man who had used up his body to the point of an 85 year old, dem- like uh, Alzheimer's patient. That's a lot that you've given more than you had to give. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. That's how I see it. And that. that it was completely preventable. Well, that too. And and that th- that you can't just do that. Just because you can walk away from an accident doesn't mean there wasn't an impact, right? That's, I think, another big piece here is... That the wrestling associations would allow someone to take a headfirst dive into a solid mass over and over and over again and not require a helmet of some sort because, of course, that would not go with his costume. That's not going to fit in with our story. Or even just require medical medical uh, screenings. At, 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 at intervals that make sense, whether it's annual, semi-annually, all wrestlers who do X number of moves involving whatever, you know, you have to go to do these preventative screenings. I mean, I just, I don't know. We know a lot more now than I, I know than we did then, but it is, it's sad to see all this now. I believe one of the legacies of uh, Chris, other than his uh, surviving two children, uh, from his first marriage, um, I believe that one of his legacies was to get the world to wake up about CTE, chronic yeah. traumatic encephalopathy. Yeah. That um, you 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 and and you know then when the what was the name of that Hernandez 
Aaron uh, Hernandez or Aaron no? Hernandez, no. a football player. Yes. He had his brain examined mm-hmm. after he committed suicide in mm-hmm. in prison for murders. Um, uh, he was found to have CTE. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of attention has now starting to come to what needs to be done to prevent that. In my opinion, Caroline, and I'm just being speculative here, obviously, I believe that Chris Benoit was dealing with the thought that his career had peaked and he was on the downside of his career. He was functioning as a mentor to new people, younger people, more and more. He was dealing with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and he was as confused as a late-state Alzheimer's patient. He was experiencing fear and depression and had lost his best friend, Eddie Guerrero. He had marriage issues. Nancy had filed for divorce three years before, and he was paranoid. With Nancy dead that Friday he did searching on his computer that was later found. And one of the things that he kept coming back to and spending time on were stories about Elijah in the Bible. He was perhaps fixated on the story of Elijah raising people up from the dead. He killed his son and he hoped to bring him back. He killed his wife and he hoped to, kill, to bring her back. That's what I think caused him to put a Bible next to their bodies. Like, you know, hey, read about Elisha. You can come back. Right. Or like, I didn't, maybe I didn't mean this. I need, you know what I mean? I didn't. Well, yeah. And he he was in a world where you could dive with your head onto a platform and go on living yeah, and the stories are mixed here, right? And if you're an Alzheimer's patient at the ripe age of 85 in your mind, discerning reality from the story created about reality is going to become more difficult, I think, too. There's just a lot that had to converge here, I think, for this to have happened. I think so, too. Uh, when he, when Chris realized that he wasn't going to be able to bring his family back to life, he killed himself. Yeah. Uh, At the time of the murders, um, he only had small, I mean, just fragments left in his brain in the executive, in the frontal cortex, which is the executive function that, you know, does our thinking for us. Uh, He was not thinking clearly. It tells me the story of Chris Benoit, Nancy, and Daniel Benoit is a cautionary tale. Sudden, Sudden changes in people in your life. Okay, they're a serious marker of something that needs professional help in figuring it out. And when I say professional help, I am not talking about go see a psychologist for a couple of days. You know, it can take a lifetime to help untangle the first part of the lifetime. A hundred percent. Yeah, you're right. Keep pushing. And, That's my problem. I do hate the trial and error process of seeking out medical care because it isn't as simple as going to seek medical care. That's never what it is. You're always having to be fully involved, push for what you need, research, ask friends, keep going, go to a different doctor, go again. What are the, You know what I mean? It is an annoying process. So 
<laughs> well, you know, something was going on with him before all this happened because Nancy, you know, just said, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. And she wanted to divorce him, but she loved him and he loved her and he promised to change. She didn't know he couldn't. I think she thought it was a substance abuse issue. I think a lot of people thought that because at the time, that's all we had in our vernacular to speak about this. Well, and we have this cute phrase now called road rage. rage. Yeah. So when somebody gets in line in front of you in the car you're going to get out of your car and go up and shoot them. And then later they find out that, oh, he had steroids. That's Roid Ray. So they had this cute, handy dandy excuse for everything that was happening to Chris. And, you know, yeah, that was happening to Chris, but not, that's not what really happened here. Right. It's not what was going on. You know, bashing your head many dozens of times over many years, getting chairs, not fake chairs, crushed on the back of your skull over and over. That needs professional help every time it happens. Chris Benoit loved deeply. His son from his first marriage, David Benoit, is now a young wrestler on the national scene. I saw an interview with him the other day, and he said, you know, somebody was asking him, why do you want to wrestle? Oh, I love the stories. Yeah. The stories are a lot of fun. That's what he said. He sounded like his dad. Yeah. So please, David, and everybody listening, including me and you, Caroline, learn from the mistakes of your father, Chris Benoit, who loved you, and so many others, until his brain stopped functioning. That ends our story today, Caroline. I am uh, not sympathetic to anybody in this story other than the remaining alive victims of what happened here, but I can understand and have compassion for everyone, including Chris Benoit. I do not believe this is my personal opinion after seeing all this in my research and getting familiarized with wrestling, which I never, 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 never thought I would do. But now I have respect for the people who do that work, the wrestlers themselves. I feel like the World Wrestling Entertainment Association uh, really screwed up here. Yeah. And... I believe that they exploit these wrestlers, and I believe that they need to be stopped and made to take care of their health yeah. from top to bottom. Well, the same way most other employers are somewhat required to do so, right? It's an organization of more than 50 employees. Let's get in line. These are employees. They're not commodities. They're not actors. They're not, you know, they do those things for you, but you employ them through the contract. So I don't know. I'm with you. I think that there's some regulatory efforts that should happen in terms of just medical monitoring. You need to have protocols in place for certain moves, what kind of medical follow-up. I mean, we're getting there, right, with concussions and in certain sports about how, how much longer you have to wait before you get back in the, on the field to play once you've got a concussion, how many check-ins you got to have. You know, I think wrestling could do for some of that. I read that uh, the major organizations have outlawed the 
um, headbutt, the diving headbutt. Um, but people still do it. I read that too. Well, yeah. So um, educate why, why did you do that? That way people in their backyards, because there's a whole backyard wrestling underground. Oh yeah. People get very hurt. I did know about that, that children are losing their life or becoming paralyzed from the neck down. Well, yeah, because they don't understand the sport because there's no education coming out to them that says, yeah, it looks like you can do that, but here's what actually goes into doing that move. And here's why some people can't do that move. Are you a person who can't do that move? You know, it's like just educate, you know, education goes a long way, I think, in in the beginning. I agree. Anyway, today's episode is researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. That's how other people find our podcast. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. Just forward us to 500 people and we'll be happy. (laughs) All these actions help new listeners find us. Quit laughing, Caroline. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of our listeners. And don't forget to live and let live. Bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.